Hey, this is Jennifer Helms, and you're listening to Minutes No Limits. So another disclaimer, I'm just going to be honest with you guys. Uh, I think, I guess because when I was reading for a while, my throat started to get dry, and I started coughing, and the thing is, is that, like, it would take me a long time to find where the coughs are and edit them out. I mean, it wasn't like a lot, a lot, but um, just some towards the end, I think. So I'm just going to say sorry, I I don't have the time uh, to edit that out just because I have homework. But maybe if I listen to the, I want to listen to these episodes again. So I might do it later, but for now, just hopefully it doesn't like um, make you never want to hear my voice again. Anyways, um, here's chapter two. Welcome back. Today we're reading chapter two, Dueling Consciousness. So we have the definitions first. Assimilationist, one who is expressing expressing the racist idea that a racial group is culturally or behaviorally inferior and is supporting cultural or behavioral enrichment programs to develop that racial group. Segregationist, one who is expressing the racist idea that a permanently inferior racial group can never be developed in a supporting policy that segregates away that racial group. Anti-racist, one who is expressing the idea that racial groups are equals and none needs developing in a supporting policy that reduces racial inequity. My parents had not seen each other since the bus ride to Urbana 70. Christmas approached in 1973. Soul Liberation held a concert at the iconic Broadway Presbyterian Church in Harlem that turned into a reunion of sorts for the New York attendees of Urbana 70. Dad and Ma showed up. Old friends beckoned and something new. After the chords of Soul Liberation fell silent, my parents finally spoke again and a spark finally lit. Days later, Dad called. He asked Ma out. I've been called to the mission field, Ma responded, leaving in March. Ma and Dad persevered even after Ma left to teach in a rural Liberian village outside Monrovia for nine months. Eight years later, they were married, dating, daring to name me their second son, exalted father when i arrived in a world not in the practice of exalting black bodies just before that arrival as my pregnant mother celebrated her 31st birthday on june 24 1982 president reagan declared war on her unborn baby we must put drug abuse on the run through stronger law enforcement reagan said in the rose garden It wasn't drug abuse that was put on the run, of course, but people like me, born into this regime of stronger law enforcement. The stiffer sentencing sentencing policies for drug crimes, not a net increase in crime, caused the American prison population to quadruple between 1880 and 2000. While violent crimes typically account for about half of the prison population at any given time, More people were incarcerated for drug crimes than violent crimes every year from 1993 to 2009. White people are more likely than black and Latinx people to sell drugs, and the 
consumes drugs at similar rates. The races consume drugs at similar rates. Yet African Americans are far more likely than whites to be jailed for drug offenses. Nonviolent black drug offenders remain in prison for about the same length of time, 58.7 months, as violent white criminals, 61.7 months. In 2016, black and Latinx people were still grossly overrepresented in the prison population at 56%, double their percentage of the U.S. adult population. While white people were still grossly underrepresented in the prison population at 30%, about half their percentage of the U.S. US adult population. Reagan didn't start this so-called war, as historian Elizabeth Hinton recounts. President Lyndon B. Johnson first put us on the run when he named 1965 the year when this country began a thorough, intelligent, and effective war on crime. My parents were in high school when Johnson's war on crime mocked his under-supported war on poverty, like a heavily armed shooter mocking the under-resourced trauma surgeon. President Richard Nixon announced his war on drugs in 1971 to devastate his harshest critics, black and anti-war activists. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Nixon's domestic policy chief, John Enlichman, told a Harper's reporter years later, Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Black people joined in the vilification, convincing that homicidal drug dealers, gun toters, and thieving heroin addicts <coughs> Wow. <coughs> I think my voice is getting dry from reading. Honestly, I don't even know if I'm gonna cut that out. Anyways. Um where was I? And, and thieving heroin addicts were flushing down the drain all the hand, all the hard-won gains of the civil rights movement, to quote an editorial in the Washington Afro-American in 1981. Some, if not most, black leaders, in an effort to appear as saviors of the people against this menace, turned around and set the black criminal alongside the white racist as the enemies, enemies of the people. Seemingly contradictory calls to lock up and to save black people dueled in legislators around the country, but also in the minds of Americans. Black leaders joined the Republicans from Nixon to Reagan and with Democrats from Johnson to Bill Clinton in calling for and largely receiving more police, police officers, tougher and mandatory sentencing, and more jails. But they also called for the end of police brutality, more jobs, better schools, and drug treatment programs. These calls were less enthusiastically received. By the time it came along in 1982, the shame about black-on-black -black crime was on the verge of overwhelming a generation's pride about black is beautiful. Many non-black Americans looked down on black addicts in revulsion, but too many black folk looked down on the same addicts in shame. Both of my parents emerged from poor families, one from northern urban projects, one from southern rural fields. Both framed their rise from poverty into the middle class in the 1980s as a climb up the ladder of education and hard work. As they climbed, they were in, in, 
inundated with racist and talking points about black people refusing to climb, the ones who were irresponsibly strung out on heroin or crack, crack, who enjoyed stealing and being criminally dependent on the hard-earned money of climbing Americans like them. In 1985, adored civil rights lawyer Eleanor Holmes Norton took to the New York Times to claim the remedy is not as simple as providing necessities and opportunities, as anti-racist argued. She urged the overthrow of the complicated predatory ghetto subculture. She called on people like my parents with ghetto origins to save ghetto males, and women by impressing on them the values of hard work, education, respect for family, and achieving a better life for one's children. Norton provided no empirical evidence to substantiate her position that certain ghetto blacks were deficient in any of these values. But my parents, along with many others in the new black middle class, consumed these ideas. The class that challenged racist policies from the 1950s through the 1970s now began challenging other black people in the 1980s and 1990s. <coughs> Anti-racism seemed like an indulgence in the face of self-destructive behavior they were witnessing all around them. My parents followed Norton's directive. They fed me the mantra that education and hard work would uplift me just as it had uplifted them and would, in the end, uplift all black people. My parents, even from within their racial consciousness, were susceptible to the racist idea that it was laziness that kept black people down. So they paid more attention to chastising black people than to Reagan's policies, which were chopping the ladder they climbed up and then punishing people for falling. The Reagan revolution was just that, a radical revolution for the benefit of the already powerful. It further enriched high-income Americans by cutting their taxes and government regulations, installing a Christmas tree military budget, and arresting the power of unions. 70% of middle-income blacks said they saw a great deal of racial discrimination in 1979, before Reagan Revolutionaries rolled back enforcement of civil rights laws and affirmative action regulations before they rolled back funding to state and local governments whose contracts and jobs had become safe avenues into the single-family urban home of the black middle class. In the same month that Reagan announced his war on drugs on Ma's birthday in 1982, he cut the safety net of federal welfare programs and Medicaid sending more low-income blacks into poverty. His stronger law enforcement sent more black people into the clutches of violent cops who killed 22 black people for every white person in the early 1980s. Black youth were four times more likely to be unemployed in 1985 than in 1954, but few connected the increase in unemployment to the increase in violent crime. Americans have long been trained to see the deficiencies of people rather than policy. <coughs> it's pretty easy to mistake to make. It's a pretty easy mistake to make. 
People are in our faces. Policies are distant. We are particularly poor at seeing the policies lurking behind the struggles of people. And so many parents, so my parents, turned away from the problems of policy to look at the problems of people and reverted to striving to save and civilize black people rather than liberate them. Civilizer theology became more attractive to my parents in the face of the rise of crack and the damage it did to black people as it did to so many children of civil rights and black power. But in many ways, liberation theology remained their philosophical home, the home they raised me in. Deep down, my parents were still the people who were set on fire by liberation theology back in Urbana. Ma still dreamed of globe trotting the black world as a liberating missionary, a dream her Liberian friends encouraged in 1974. Dad dreamed of writing liberating poetry, a dream Professor Addison Gale encountered in 1971. I always wondered what would have been if my parents had not let their reasonable fears stop them from pursuing their dreams. Traveling Ma, helping to free the black world. Dad accompanying her and finding inspiration for his freedom poetry. Instead, Ma settled for a corporate career in healthcare technology. Dad settled for an accounting career. They entered the American middle class, a space then as now defined by its disproportionate white majority, and began to look at themselves and their people not only through their own eyes, but also through the eyes of others. They joined other black people trying to fit into that white space while still trying to be themselves and save their people. They were not wearing a mask as much as splitting into two minds. This conceptual duple reflected what W.E.B. Du Bois indelibly voiced in The Souls of Black Folk in 1903. It is a peculiar sensation this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, Du Bois wrote, he would neither Africanize America nor bleach his N-word soul in a flood of white Americanism. Du Bois wished to be both an N-word and an American. Du Bois wished to inhabit opposing constructs. To be American is to be white. To be white is to not be a N-word. But what Du Bois termed double consciousness may be more precisely termed dueling consciousness. One ever feels his two-ness, Du Bois explained. An American... I'm just, maybe I'll just say black in, in place. An American, a black, two souls, two thoughts... Or maybe, I don't know. See, here's me having a little moment here. Because um, I guess this book is going to have the N-word in it a lot. I'm not sure. I guess, I don't know. I'll keep reading. Um, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals, and one dark body whose dog... Dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. Du Bois also explained how this war was being waged within his own dark body, wanting to be an N-word and wanting to escape into the mass of Americans 
in the same way that the Irish and Scandinavians were doing. These dueling ideas were there in 1903, and the same duel overtook my parents, and it remains today. Duel within black consciousness seems to usually be between anti-racist and assimilationist ideas. Du Bois believed in both the anti-racist concept of racial relativity of every racial group looking at itself with its own eyes, and the assimilationist concept of racial standards of looking at oneself through the eyes of another racial group, in his case, white people. In other words, he wanted to liberate black people from racism, but he also wanted to change them to save them from their, quote, relic of barbarism. Du Bois argued in 1903 that racism and the low social levels of the mass of the race were both responsible for the inward degradation. Assimilation would be a part of the solution to this problem. Assimilationist ideas are racist ideas. Assim- Assimilationists can position any racial group as a superior standard that another racial group should be measuring themselves against, the benchmark they should be trying to reach. Assimilationists typically position white people as a superior standard. Do Americans ever stop to reflect that there are in this land a million men of black blood who, judged by any standard, have reached the full measure of the best type of modern European culture? Is it fair? Is it... it wait... Is it fair, is it decent, is it Christian to belittle such aspiration? Du Bois asked in 1903. The dueling consciousness played out in a different way for my parents who became all about black self-reliance. In 1985, they were drawn to Floyd H. Flakes Allen's African Methodist Episcopal Church in Southside, Queens. Flake and his equally magnetic wife, Elaine, grew Allen into a megachurch in one of the area's largest private sector employers through its liberated kingdom of commercial and social service enterprises. From its school to its senior citizen housing complex to its crisis center for victims of domestic abuse, there were no walls to Flake's church. It was exactly the type of ministry that would naturally fascinate those descendants of Ravana 70. My father joined Flake's ministerial staff in 1989. My favorite church program happened every Thanksgiving. We would arrive as lines of people were hugging the church building, which smelled particularly good that day. Perfumes of gravy and cranberry sauce warmed the November air, the aromas multiplied in deliciousness as we entered the basement fellowship hall where the ovens were. I usually found my spot in the endless assembly line of servers. I could barely see over the food, but I strained up on my toes to help feed every bit of 5,000 people. I tried to be as kind to these hungry people as my mother's peach cobbler. 
This problem of black people feeding black people embodied the gospel of black self-reliance that the adults in my life were feeding me. Black self-reliance was a double-edged sword. One side was an abhorrence of white supremacy and white paternalism, white rulers and white saviors. On the other, a love of black rulers and black saviors of black paternalism. On one side was the anti-racist belief that black people were entirely capable of ruling themselves on rel of relying on themselves. On the other, the assimilationist idea that black people should focus on pulling themselves up by their baggy jeans and tight halter tops, getting off cracks, street corners, and government handouts, and if those were the things partially holding, as if those things were the things partially holding their incomes down. This dueling consciousness nourished black pride by insisting that there was nothing wrong with black people, but it also cultivated shame with its implication that there was something behaviorally wrong with black people. Well, at least those other black people. If the, pro if the problem was in our own behavior, then Reagan revolutionaries were not keeping black people down. We were keeping ourselves down. White people have their own dueling consciousness between the segregationist and the assimilationist, the slave trader and the missionary, the pro-slavery exploiter and the anti-slavery civilizer, the eugenist and the melting potter, the mass incarcerator and the mass developer, the blues lives matter and the all lives matter, the non-racist nationalist and the not-racist American. Assimilationist ideas and segregationist ideas are two types of racist ideas. The duel within racist thought. White assimilationist ideas challenge segregationist ideas that claim people of color are incapable of development, incapable of reaching the superior standard, incapable of becoming white and therefore fully human. Assimilationists believe that people of color can, in fact, be developed, become fully human, just like white people, as assimilationist ideas reduce people of color to the level of children needing instruction on how to act. Segregationist ideas cast people of color as animals. To use Trump's descriptor for Latinx immigrants, unteachable after a point. The history of the racialized world is a three-way fight between assimilationists, segregationists, and anti-racists. Anti-racist ideas are based in the truth that racial groups are equals in all the ways they are different. Assimilationist ideas are rooted in the notion that certain racial groups are culturally or behaviorally inferior, and segregationist ideas spring from a belief in genetic racial distinction and fixed hierarchy. I am apt to suspect the N-words and, in general, all the other species of men, for there are four or five different kinds, this is a quote, to be naturally inferior to the whites. Enlightenment philosopher David Hume wrote in 1753, quote, There never was a civilized nation of any other complexion than white. Such a uniform and constant difference could not happen in so many countries and ages if nature had not made an, an original distinction between these breeds of men. David Hume declared that all races are created unequal, but Thomas Jefferson seemed to disagree in 1776 when he declared all men are created equal. But Thomas Jefferson never made the anti-racist declaration, all racial groups are equal. 
while segregationist ideas suggest a racial group is permanently inferior, assimilationist ideas suggest a racial group is temporarily inferior. It would be hazardous to affirm that, equally cultivated for a few generations, the black would not become equal, Jefferson once wrote, except he didn't write black, he wrote the n-word, in assimilationist fashion. The dueling white consciousness fashioned two types of racist policies, reflecting the dual of racist ideas. Since assimilationists posit cultural and behavioral hierarchy, assimilationist Assimilation, I said it so many times I just ran out of it. Assimilationist policies and programs are geared toward developing, civilizing, and integrating a racial group to distinguish from programs that uplift individuals. Since segregationists posit the incapability of a racial group to be civilized and developed, segregationist policies are geared toward segregating, enslaving, incarcerating, deporting, and killing. Since anti racists posit the racial groups, that the racial groups are already civilized, anti-racist policies are geared toward reducing racial inequities and creating equal opportunity. White people have generally advocated for both assimilationist and segregationist policies. People of color have generally advocated for both anti-racist and assimilationist policies. The history of of the American black is the history of this strife. To quote Devoy, the strife between the assimilationist and the anti-racist, between mass civilizing and mass equalizing. In Du Bois' black body, in my parents' black bodies, in my young black body, this double desire, this dueling consciousness, yielded an inner strife between black pride and yearning to be white. My own assimilationist ideas stopped me from noticing the racist policies really getting high during Reagan's drug war. The dueling right consciousness has, from its position of relative power, shaped the struggle within black consciousness. Despite the cold truth that America was founded by by white men for white men, as segregationist Jefferson Davis said on the floor of the U.S. Senate in 1860, black people have often expressed a desire to be American and have been encouraged in this by America's undeniable history of anti-racist progress. Away from chattel slavery and Jim Crow, despite the cold instructions from the likes of noble uh, Larate, I don't know what that word is, Gunner, and somebody, to become assimilated into American culture. Black people have also, as Du Bois said, desired to remain black, discouraged by America's undeniable history of racist progress, from advancing police violence and voter suppression to widening racial inequities in areas ranging from health to wealth. History duels the undeniable history of anti-racist progress. The undeniable history of racist progress before and after the Civil War, before and after civil rights, before and after the first black presidency, the white consciousness duels. The white body defines the American body. The white body segregates the black body from the American body. The white body instructs the black body to assimilate to the American body. The white body rejects the black body, assimilating to into the American body, and history and consciousness duel anew. 
The black body is in turn experiences the same duel. The black body is instructed to become an American body. The American body is the white body. The black body strives to assimilate into the American body. The American body rejects the black body. The black body separates from the American body. The black body is instructed to assimilate into the American body in history and consciousness duel anew. But there is a way to get free. To be anti-racist is to emancipate oneself from the dueling consciousness. To be anti-racist is to conquer the assimilationist consciousness and the segregationist consciousness. The white body no longer presents itself as the American body. The black body no longer strives to be the American body. Knowing there is no such thing as the American body, only American bodies, racialized by power. So my initial thoughts uh, right after reading is that the dual consciousness thing, it really does kind of explain a lot of stuff. And I definitely think it's an idea that not many people are aware about. I definitely wasn't aware of it. So glad to learn more. And hopefully you did too.